Welcome to Managed Carecast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. This is Pat Salber, and it's uh, time for my monthly podcast with the American Journal of Managed Care. And today's guest is Harold Burstein, who's a doctor, doctor. He has an MD and a PhD. And he's with the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, the famous Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. And he's the executive editor of a brand new report. Um, it's actually, actually a fascinating report from the American Society of Clinical Oncology, or ASCO, as most of us say. And it's their 12th annual report on the progress against cancer. So welcome, Dr. Burstein. Thanks for having me on. Well, let's dive in. Um, in this report, which I found fascinating, um, the society named immunotherapy as, as the advance of the year. And I thought it was an interesting twist that it wasn't just immunotherapy, but something that you called immunotherapy 2.0. So I, so I thought we could maybe start out by having you explain to our listeners just exactly what immunotherapy is and how it's different from standard chemotherapy. Sure. Well, I'm first really glad that you caught that little twist that we put in there because we, believe it or not, thought long and hard about that little angle of it. And uh, I think it has resonated with people um, as they have watched the growing interest in clinical outcomes for all these immunotherapy drugs. So in very simple terms, you know, immunotherapy is uh, a treatment approach to cancer where we are trying to harness the body's own immune system to fight off or prevent cancer. And there could be many different ways of doing immunotherapy. Through the 1990s and the aughts, there was interest in growth factors. So there were studies from Steve Rosenberg at the National Cancer Institute that looked at interleukin-2 or gamma interferon, which are immunomodulatory proteins um, as treatments for melanoma. You could have vaccines. Uh, there's a long history of vaccine trials in cancer care. And uh, of course, right now we have a, a very successful cancer vaccine approach in the way of Gardasil, the anti-HPV vaccine that's recommended for young people uh, who are at risk for HPV-associated cancers, including cervical cancer and head and neck cancer. And, and then you have what really has become our uh, latest innovation in oncology, which are drugs designed to take the breaks off the body's immune system by targeting a pair of proteins called PD-1 and PD-L1. Uh, and in doing this, they are so-called checkpoint inhibitors. They are taking the breaks off the checkpoint that blocks the immune system's ability to attack a cancer cell under normal circumstances. And by using antibodies that target those proteins, uh, there have been some remarkable success stories seen in fighting off cancers that have been notoriously difficult to combat with conventional chemotherapy, including cancers like uh, melanoma, lung cancer, uh, renal cell or kidney cancer, and, and bladder cancer. Um, so it's really a very exciting time because there's a sense that this whole clinical research space has just opened up uh, and there have been uh, at least a half a dozen 
FDA approvals for immunotherapy-based treatments of cancer within the past uh, 12 to 24 months, and the number grows uh, very uh, frequently these days. So um, that's a little bit about what immunotherapy is, and um, uh, it was really in recognition of this growing wave of immunotherapy successes, not just in melanoma, which had been recognized in a previous ASCO highlight of the year, but now quickly spread into other tumor types, um, lung, bladder, renal cell carcinoma, Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, head and neck cancers, uh, where um, uh, there's this tremendous excitement uh, across the field of oncology for this new approach. Well, it's very exciting, not just for the oncologists, but obviously for the patients and the families who have these diseases that previously were considered in some cases incurable. And there have been examples where these drugs have, uh, you know, without too much hyperbole, it seems like it's brought people back from, from the brink of, of death. So one question I have is, is it anticipated that this category of immunotherapy, the checkpoint inhibitors in particular, will eventually be able to be applied to all cancers, or are there some kinds of cancers in which this category of drug may not uh, may not be able to work? You know, when you take a standardized test and they put in the words never or all, you're supposed to always say no, because uh, nothing <laughs> works always or never. So I, I don't think it's going to become an approach for all cancers. Um, one of the things we tried to highlight in this report is you know, where are the markers that predict which cancers are most likely to benefit um, from this immunotherapy approach? So um, to date, most of the success has been seen in a couple of different cancers which share a feature of high rates of cancer mutations. So cancers, as many people know, uh, are abnormal cells. And one of the things that typifies cancer is that the genetic the genetic material in the cell has been damaged. There are too many genes. There are genes that are deleted. There are mutations in genes or chromosomes. And this mutational burden varies from cancer to cancer. Many cancers that are caused by environmental carcinogens, whether it's sun exposure in the case of melanoma or cigarette smoke exposure in the case of lung cancer and a variety of other smoking-associated cancers tend to have lots of mutations. And it is in those tumors that we are really seeing uh, the most significant activity for immunotherapy right now. This fits the overall hypothesis, which says there's an immune response to the tumor. The immune response is suppressed by normal checks and balances in the immune system the tumor cells that are most likely to cause an immune response are those that have lots of mutations, which create the opportunity for the body to recognize them as a little bit foreign or alien, if you will. And so that's why um, there's been a lot of excitement in melanoma, lung cancer, bladder cancer being another one, another smoking-associated cancer with lots of mutations. Um, another very interesting set of tumors where we are seeing dramatic activity are viral-associated cancers. This includes head and neck cancer. It includes um, Hodgkin's lymphoma, which uh, often has Epstein-Barr virus or EBV-associated cancers, and some very rare uh, skin cancers called Merkel cell carcinomas, which are caused by an unusual virus, um, which creates these sort of tumor growths. So 
again, this fits with the idea that mutations and DNA damage in these cells, whether it's caused by these viruses or by cancer-causing things like sunlight or smoking, um, are uh, setting the tumor up to be a ripe target for immunotherapy. By contrast, you know, there are other cancer types where so far we are not seeing so much activity, and these tend to be cancers that have lower rates of mutation, um, breast cancer, uh, particularly low-grade breast cancers, low-grade prostate cancers. The preliminary studies have not been big successes to date, but um, I think there's enough encouragement in those cancers, too, that you'll see larger, more definitive studies to really figure out whether there's a role for these checkpoint inhibitors in those cancer types. That's a great overview, and um, and lets me want to segue into this 2.0 part of immunotherapy. So these are highly effective for certain types of cancers. Uh, what exactly did the report want to get at when they say this isn't just immunotherapy, but it's kind of like the next gen or the next step for immunotherapy yeah. or immunotherapy 2.0? Well, about two, two to three years ago, the oncology world was really you know, shocked and um, uh, amazed by um, the success of the first wave of these drugs against melanoma. Um, the um, PD-1, uh, PD-L1 axis targeted by drugs like nivolumab in combination with a CTLA-4-based therapy, ipilimumab, showed tremendous responses in melanoma, which, um, again, advanced melanoma, which historically have been a very difficult cancer to treat with our existing drugs. So that really sort of set the paradigm for trials in, in uh, advanced cancer. But at the same time, everybody said, well, that's melanoma, which is an unusual tumor. It's a tumor where we already knew that in some older studies, you occasionally saw these spontaneous regressions of the cancer and where there'd been other inklings that, you know, you could manipulate immune response to get a better result. What would it really do in, quote, real, unquote, traditional solid cancers like lung cancer, bladder cancer, head and neck cancer, um, those kinds of tumors. And so what we've seen in the past 12 to 18 months has just been a remarkable outpouring of clinical data and FDA approvals for these approaches in very common widespread cancers. And as I said, that included um, lung cancer, bladder cancer, kidney cancer, head and neck cancer, Hodgkin's lymphoma, very provocative data for Merkel cell um, uh, carcinoma, for certain kinds of colon cancer, and it grows almost week to week. Um, so uh, based on that, you know, we really thought it was time in this report to recognize this spreading wave of success of immunotherapy, that this has gone from something that was a relatively boutique tool in academic cancer centers that had big melanoma practices uh, to something that every oncologist in the country needs to know about uh, because they're going to be using it to treat uh, um, at least a half dozen and, and soon likely more different types of cancer. And so that was the 2.0 part of it. This was not uh, the first demonstration of it. It's not like there was a brand new drug that uh, emerged, uh, but rather this sense that we were really witnessing a sea change in the way people thought about cancer treatment and the opportunities to treat a large number of different malignancies. So there's still a lot of important things that we need to understand about immunotherapy, um, such as 
who we talked a little bit about this, which patients um, will which treatments work for best. Um, for example, having a lot of the marker um, tends to mean the PDL1 tends to mean you would expect it to work better, although it's not always perfectly correlated. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Because it's important from the point of view, which we're going to come to talk about a little bit later, that these drugs are really expensive. So you don't want to be sprinkling them over a population in whom, let's say, half, half of the people it really won't work for. Um, talk a little bit about how, we're, how you're trying to get closer to really understanding in which exact patients um, these treatments should be uh, applied to. Right. So this is a, um, uh, a common problem in, you know, cancer uh, medicine in general, which is, can you find a subset of tumors or a, a biomarker where, you know, there is or is not a particular benefit? Uh, because obviously you'd like to use it selectively in cases where it is most likely to work, and you'd obviously want to spare patients where they simply don't need it based on clinical or features of their tumor. Um, so we're, we're kind of getting to that in immunotherapy, but it is a work in progress. And that's probably one of, uh, aside from the sort of drug trials to explore these checkpoint inhibitors in every cancer you can think of now, the, the second biggest research project, which we highlighted in our report, was really to discuss biomarkers and other predictors of benefit. So for instance, in some studies in lung cancer, expression of this protein called PDL1 on tumor cells, um, which happens in about a third of the cases, um, seems to predict strongly the major benefit of um, uh, uh, PDL1 uh, or PD1 targeted therapy. So that is to say, if the cancer expresses PDL1, then there's a greater likelihood that these checkpoint inhibitors would be uh, likely to be effective. At this point, having said that, um, it's pretty unclear where to set that threshold. Some investigators think it should be a very high threshold. You need to see a lot of expression. That sort of fits with what you'd expect the tumor to accomplish, the, the drug to accomplish. But other studies have suggested you can see responses even in situations where there's very little PDL1 expression. And it's not clear whether that is because the testing is just not so worked out or whether there's a little more to it than the simple mechanism of action we've been imagining might suggest. So it's a very important research study. Um, different trials have had different thresholds for evaluating these things. Um, but, you know, it really represents a, a seminal issue in figuring out who really should get these drugs and who might be spared them. Other markers that people are looking at include circulating or, um, excuse me, infiltrating tumor lymphocytes. So when you look at a cancer under the microscope, you see both the cancer cells, and in many instances, you also see lymphocytes, which express the other half of this protein, the PD-1 protein, um, infiltrating into the tumor. So then there are studies, well, can you quantify the number of lymphocytes infiltrating the tumor? Does that predict the benefit of immunotherapy? Does PD-1 expression on the lymphocytes predict the benefit of immunotherapy? So these are studies that as yet do not have definitive answers, but are very much part of the ongoing uh, research agenda. So I had a, a, a couple other things um, in terms of really getting to understand how these drugs work better. And um, one of them is a question about resistance. Do, do people's tumors become resistant to these drugs? Or can you, 
expect that you can keep on giving courses of these drugs uh, over and over again as the drug, as the tumor itself mutates and changes what it, it expresses. Again, a, a fantastic question, and the answers at this point, I would say, are still pretty premature. So a couple of clinical observations. In situations like melanoma or lung cancer, you know, many patients will have some response, but in most patients, the cancer eventually grows back. Interestingly, in a substantial fraction of patients, and this is a really exciting observation, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 30%, varies study to study, but in a good fraction of patients, there are long-term periods of tumor control. And that, you know, invites this idea that maybe you've set up an ongoing immune response that will provide indefinite tumor control. At the moment, that doesn't seem to be the case for the majority of patients, however. Not clear if it's because the immune response uh, finds a way around it or gets blocked by other things that the tumor secretes or elaborates. Uh, not clear if um, there are uh, other escape mechanisms that the cancer cells uh, uh, um, uh, discover on their own, if you will, uh, to elude the immune system, or that the immune system response is just not sustained in a way that um, you know, your lifetime response to polio virus is sustained after a vaccine. So those are things that are, are really uh, important to figure out. Then the related question is, you know, in patients whose cancer progresses, could you reintroduce an immunotherapy drug? Well, there are studies that are now underway to really look at that question. Preliminary data occasionally suggest you can see a response again. And then finally, there's a whole other wave of immune drugs coming to market. So the first one's really focused on this CTLA-4, PD-1, PD-L1 axis, which is part of the interaction between the um, uh, tumor cells and the um, uh, immune cells. But there are a lot of other potential ways of goosing the immune system that might make it clinically more effective. And so those trials are uh, getting going with novel agents. Um, so I had one more clinical question, and then we're going to talk money, um, and that is uh, toxicity. So I know that there was a, a, a report that talked about some deaths that had occurred in, uh, I think it was melanoma patients who are on two of these agents. And I, and I think, but I'm not positive, maybe you can explain to the listeners that it, you know, what you're doing is you're really unleashing the immune system. So it does raise this issue of, there are diseases that are related to, to the immune system being overactive, the autoimmune diseases. Absolutely. Yeah. So these drugs are antibodies. They target these proteins on the cancer cells or on the immune cells. Um, but for the most part, they are not very specific. And so when you take the brakes off the immune system, the side effects that you get are related to immune activation. And so um, you see... Uh, the immune system could attack almost any tissue in the body, but particularly common problems that have been reported include pneumonitis, inflammation of the lungs, colitis, inflammation of the bowels, the colon, um, attacks on the endocrine system, so thyroid disease or pituitary disease or diabetes. Um, the New York Times did a, a very nicely done uh, a series on these new classes of drugs, and one of their episodes or one of their articles focused on the side effects and described a patient who developed diabetes because the immune system essentially wiped out the normal cells in the pancreas that um, make insulin. And you can also get skin reactions, other types of allergic reactions, systemic inflammatory responses, 
Um, and so this has been uh, another big part of the education and awareness campaign because as these drugs move into routine clinical use, um, doctors really need to become more familiar with the new side effect profile that we're seeing. This is not the usual, your hair's gonna fall out, you're gonna get sick to your stomach, your blood counts are gonna get low thing with uh, chemotherapy drugs that we give all the time in cancer medicine. That's right, they'll have to either partner with their endocrinology friends or learn a bit of endocrinology themselves. There's <laughs> a what whole specialty, is... There's, that's exactly right. There's a whole new micro specialty coming forward of um, endocrine manifestations of immunotherapy drugs. And we uh, at our center have, have um, you know, had to partner up with our colleagues at Brigham and Women's Hospital. And now we've got several junior faculty who are really interested in this. And they're seeing these patients and working with the clinical trial list as they develop these trials. It's a whole new uh, niche specialty. Yeah, that's exciting. I, I've, uh, I've often thought that, say, in another 10 or 20 years, we won't be talking about uh, specialties by organ systems. We may be talking about specialties by certain kinds of metabolic pathways, including, you know, perhaps the pathways that are involved with the checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, it'll be a brave new world. Um, but I want to take the time we have left to talk a little bit about money. And I, I thought I'd start about with something that was in, in the report, um, which said that uh, almost one in three of the top advances that were described in the report were made possible by federal grants. But the report pointed out that the NIH now has less purchasing power than it did just a decade ago. And we don't know all the details to interject a little bit of politics in here. We don't know all the details of the president's budget yet, but we do know from a recent announcement that uh, you know, many non-military agencies are targeted for huge cuts. What, what should we be doing? You know, people like yourself who are involved in a specialty society, people like our listeners who um, may have more um, personal reasons for wanting to be sure that this research continues. What do you think we can do? What is ASCO doing in particular? And what do you think uh, ordinary folks should be doing to ensure that the flow of funds to NIH is not just preserved, but actually increased? America as a nation has benefited enormously from the federal investment in cancer research as part of its larger investment in healthcare research uh, for citizens in the country. And so much of the basic science that has given rise to these immunotherapy drugs that we've been talking about, in addition to decades worth of support of clinical trials, has come from the NCI, the National Cancer Institute. Um, and when you go to a meeting like the annual ASCO meeting uh, and you see what are the most important papers that are being presented, the definitive cutting edge practice changing studies, a huge percentage of them still rely on federal research funding. So the good news is that, you know, over the decades, that investment has borne remarkable fruit. Um, Americans with cancer and their families are, are doing better and better because of that enormous investment. And obviously, everyone who cares about cancer research, everyone who cares about cancer patients, everyone who has a loved one who has cancer has an enormous personal stake in seeing that this federal investment continues. It is um, on the scale of $30 billion historically. So it is you know way beyond what of 30 billion per year. It is way beyond what any state government or um, foundation uh, or other group important as those uh, agencies are, uh, but way beyond the scale of what they can provide in the way of research dollars. So, um, you know, ASCO 
uh, along with other uh, uh, healthcare organizations, cares very deeply about this and, and wants to see as much funding for that kind of research as possible. Um, and so we are all waiting to see what the new uh, budget proposals will be and what agencies will be affected and how Congress um, steps up uh, to look into the, to the budget. Historically, uh, this is one issue that has enjoyed enormous uh, bipartisan support, and we certainly hope that that will continue to be the case. So before we leave um, research, uh, which is so important to everything we just talked about, there was a story about the right to try legislation. And in the press release of that report, um, it, it, it seemed to be um, saying that th these are people who are terminally ill and should get a right to try whatever drug, regardless of whether it's FDA approved or not. And it talks a little bit about the impacts on clinical research. For example, um, these are folks who may choose not to go into a controlled trial where they may or may not get the drug and may choose instead to do the right to try. And there was an implication in the PR study that uh, kind of the modes of academic research that um, kept people from getting these drugs was um, was flawed at, at best. Um, do you have any comments on, does ESCO have any position about right to try? So that's a fair question. I don't actually know if ASCO has uh, an official position or not, so I wouldn't want to speak on behalf of ASCO uh, for that. Um, you know, it's a controversial uh, um, discussion because uh, on the one hand, um, everybody understands that patients for whom standard treatments either don't exist or that haven't worked uh, and who are dying uh, need uh, something. And um, it, it certainly feels human nature to say, well, sure, let somebody try anything. Um, I think the caveats, though, are that um, in terms of you know, how we've made progress over the years, the way we've done it has been through somewhat rigid but highly effective prospective clinical trials with established ground rules that investigators, pharmaceutical companies, uh, federal uh, regulatory authorities, and doctors, as well as patient advocates and others, all understand. And there's a critique to be said that we should change those rules in various ways, but there clearly are, you know, ground rules, and for the most part, they've been highly successful, even if perhaps a little bit too complicated. Um, the issue that people are concerned about with right to try is that, you know, you could end up hurting people more than helping them. And um, many drugs that are in early stage development never make it to market. The pharmaceutical industry is always telling you that, you know, only one in a hundred drugs eventually makes it to market. And even in late stage studies, many drugs fail. And they often fail because they're neither effective, but they're always toxic. And so, you know, the idea that um, there is something out there to try that's going to save somebody without any downside probably isn't usually the case. The other thing is that when um, you look at the collective sort of, you know, where are the buckets where someone wants to do a right to try thing? And I wouldn't confess to have studied every single situation, but there are relatively few instances where there's some drug that looks so remarkable that you say, gosh, if I had any power, I would move heaven and earth to get that drug to that patient. Those drugs are approved. I mean, we don't have a system in place that keeps good drugs from people. Usually, if the drug really works, 
it gets to market. And if you look at the FDA approval in cancer medicine over the past five or 10 years, they are moving drugs through faster and faster and faster. They are not the impediment to drug discovery. So it's not like there's all these great drugs that we have that we're keeping from patients because we're waiting for some bureaucrat or um, hang up administratively. Um, in fact, um, the real story is that you know lots of good drugs have come forward and when you have remarkable drugs, they're getting to market pretty quickly. That doesn't really immediately answer the question, but I, I think it helps contextualize some of the discussion about you know that very um, uh, charged issue. Absolutely, I think what you what you just said is a really important message um, about that that the that the FDA is moving much faster and that there's no bureaucrats that are out there trying to keep you from a good drug and uh, and what could help you if you're in the unfortunate situation of having a very advanced cancer. So, Dr. Burstein, I want to uh, finish up with um, one more question about money, because these amazing drugs are also amazingly expensive, and, um, and, and not just for cancer, but, you know, there are immunotherapies that are now out there for psoriasis, for, you know, rheumatoid arthritis, for a lot of other conditions. And um, they're giving a lot of heartburn to the people who pay the bills. And that's not just the insurers, but the employers who are still providing health care coverage and the patients who are, you know, people want to say that the new designs are giving people skin in the game. I would tell you that a lot of patients I talk to would say they feel skinned and not skin in the game because we're seeing benefit designs with 20 or 30 or 40 percent coinsurance on these particular class of therapies. And even though patients are protected by something called the maximum out-of-pocket or the MOOP, I've seen MOOPs in plans this year that are in the range of $6,800 and are anticipated to be more than $7,100 next year. So any thoughts about how we're going to be sure that these potentially life-saving drugs don't become a category of drugs that's accessible only to the wealthy? Well, that's a uh, uh, probably the, you know, the, one of the biggest issues in the grand scheme of things facing oncology, facing, as you mentioned, some of those rheumatologic drugs. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about it in the context of these newer drugs for hepatitis C. Um, so the, the dilemma here is we have, you know, some of the best drugs we've ever had. You know, these drugs that cure hepatitis C are transformative drugs, right? Uh, the drugs that uh, treat rheumatoid arthritis and allow you to walk when you couldn't walk before are remarkable. And we've talked uh, at length about some of the great findings for these cancer drugs. Um, on the one hand, that research uh, comes at a price. Uh, it costs dollars to develop these drugs. At the same time, uh, the price has gone up hugely and is now, um, I think, fair to say, out of proportion to what any average American could afford. If U.S. household income has been stagnant for about $50,000 a year, you can't imagine anyone buying a drug that costs $125,000 for a year's worth of therapy. It just doesn't add up, right? So um, I think that uh, I think a few things can help the dialogue here. One is, um, you know, a uh, an honest reflection on the benefits in terms of, you know, survival or progression-free survival or symptom control um, laid out against the side effects so that people can come up with a value proposition. And ASCO and many other organizations are working to kind of classify drugs as, you know, really important drugs, 
uh, versus those that you know might not be so important in the grand scheme of things. And uh, maybe the market should reflect uh, those prices a little more in proportion to what the apparent benefit is. Uh, the second uh, is um, to uh, bring competition forward. Um, so uh, there are dozens of checkpoint inhibitor drugs in the market, and you know usually what happens in a free market economy is if you have lots of different types of um, uh, pickup trucks or mustards on the shelf in the grocery store, there's price competition. And um, I think getting those drugs to the market will hopefully in the years to come create uh, opportunities for price competition. Biosimilars may do something to alleviate that as well. Um, so those are things that, you know, kind of can nibble away at this. Uh, I think fundamentally that there needs to be a bigger political discussion, however, about what drugs uh, should cost people out of pocket. Uh, one of the things that's happened with these drugs is that cancer care in the U.S. looks increasingly different from where it did around the world. Uh, these newer biologicals and targeted therapies are simply not affordable to the vast majority of uh, the planet, much less uh, even developed countries. And you're seeing um, places like in the UK where they have governmental authorities making decisions about what, you know, what price is worth it and what is not. Um, uh, because the U.S. is the biggest market in the world for new pharmaceuticals, um, the decisions around the rest of the world have not to date had huge impacts on price, but you could begin to see that happening. A similar dialogue may need to get going here. Uh, the fact is, even as you pointed out, with this maximum out-of-pocket uh, cost, you know, if your family income is 50000 a year, uh, you, you're not going to be able to afford to spend, or not many can afford to spend 10 to 20% of that on a drug, especially a drug which, even while that's a good drug, may not cure you of your cancer. So we need to think creatively and honestly about what these costs are and how to make sure that the cost of these drugs uh, does not keep them from reaching the uh, millions of people who might potentially benefit. Um, it's, I don't have an answer to that one uh, in the sense of, you know, this is going to be a long uh, multi-party uh, discussion. I think that uh, increasingly, you're going to see, um, in the absence of any changes, you're going to see third-party payers and formulary uh, developers pressed to, you know, put more and more uh, constraints on where the drug would be used and in what patients. That creates a lot of administrative hoops for patients and doctors to jump through. We already hear from patients and doctors that they don't like those hoops. It, it interferes with the nature of healthcare, and uh, people find it very alienating and off-putting. Um, but that's how you know many third-party payers have um, uh, gone about this uh, to try and limit their own exposure to some of these drugs. I think you're going to see a lot more of that. Um, and then the final thing I think would be a good place to start is we need a lot more transparency in who's making those pathway or uh, formulary decisions. Um, you know, there's been a lot of discussion of conflict of interest in the clinical research community, but there's a whole other level of conflict when it comes to uh, how organizations decide which drugs are going to be used and who's making those decisions and making for a lot more transparency there, I think, could also be helpful. So this is a big problem. It's not going to go away because of the way um, uh, our particular uh, legislation is, which prohibits the government from negotiating drug price and prohibits the FDA from considering drug price. Um, it's, it's a rather uniquely American problem at this point. The other countries in the world solve it in different ways, most of which end up meaning less access to drugs than you see in the U.S. Uh, but it's going to require a scientific, a clinical, a uh, managerial, and a political discussion that um, 
at the moment seems very hard to imagine happening, but it really has to happen. I agree. And I want to thank you very much for an amazing discussion about a lot of different issues here. And uh, uh, hopefully what we just talked about, this whole issue of how are we going to sort through who pays for what and how much out of pocket and all the financial issues that are so very important, uh, perhaps they'll be the subject of the 2018 ASCO report, and that'll be immunotherapy 3.0. So I want to thank you very much, Dr. Burstein, for joining us and uh, sharing your insights. And uh, hopefully Anytime. touch base again. It was great talking again. to you, and uh, welcome the chance to speak again. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.